Adam. Clack. <laughs> okay, everybody ready? Have they all started like this? Yeah, uh, roughly, yeah. yeah. All right, fine. We'll oh, cut yeah. in. Welcome to the Never From Concentrate podcast, where every time we do this, you know, I want to say the show where we talk about whatever we want, because it's our show <laughs> and not yours, but that's actually somebody else's show. So I can't do that. This is the show where we talk to people who make things. So we're really passionate about making fizzy pop from start to finish with no shortcuts, no weird stuff from concentrate or anything like that. And I've never really heard from other people that do similar things of you. No, we do. We know, we know them, but we've not talked to them officially in front of a camera or recorded them. So Exactly. We wanted to shine a light on... People who do the hard work, right? The good stuff, the juicy bits. Juicy bits. <laughs> amazing. So on this podcast, we have the amazing George from Flavor Fred. I had to be really careful then that I didn't say Fred from Flavor George. That's a I mean, recurring nightmare for doing this. Frankly, I get confused what my name is. <laughs> so it depends day to day. So George is a, a wild food expert that I met because I woke up one morning in a really bougie hotel I was staying at outside of London called Birch. And I had the epiphany that I wanted to do the foraging walk that they were organizing that day because it was the middle of January. I, I do a lot of foraging in the summer and the autumn when there's things that I know that that grow near where we are but I had absolutely no idea what you could find out there in the depths of January right everything is bleak and dead apparently <laughs> apparently not and exactly I found apparently not we were walking around the grounds of birch finding all sorts of stuff that was delicious and available to pick right there and eat it was great that is what mm. I do Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that sums everything up. <laughs> we have no further Anything questions. Else? That's it. We're done. So George, that's what he does. Foraging walks. He does these amazing evenings where you go out and you find ingredients and then you go back to a kitchen and cook them up and that's eat right. them there and then. So it's literally as fresh as it could possibly be. It's incredible. So... George, to kick it off, I guess the, the first question has got to be, how did you get into it? Well, that is definitely a good question. I have been doing it most of my life. Yeah. So I guess finding flavor is really where I focus my attention. I spent quite a lot of time growing up learning how to make various wild items, you know, like cakes and sweets and you know, all these weird and wonderful things with my family, grandparents and things like that. So yeah, it wasn't until I had worked for a couple of years in London that I decided to go back and do something along those lines. So I started my own restaurant, pub restaurant. Amazing. And that was called The Foragers. And I made a variety of wild dishes, brews, distillations, and focused on the foraging side of things, doing big long walks with people and coming back and cooking it up. Flavor Fred's just the second iteration of that without a building and just mainly doing it in the wild. So it's quite a lot more fun. It gives me a lot more freedom. Amazing. So you closed the pub. 2019. A few years ago. Yeah. And then 
How did you take this from doing it every day in a pub to what you're doing now? Well, I mean, it's a bit of an emotional story, if I'm honest. The pub, I had to close. It was no longer working for me. You actually had the pleasure of trying some of our food at one point. Yeah, so like really weirdly, I, I, I mean, I obviously didn't meet you at that time, but I went to a strange party in London Fields. It was yeah. like a London Brewers Alliance meetup. And you were there cooking, yeah. cooking food. I had some sort of rabbit stew. Like you it was did. amazing. You did. Do you remember that? that I thing? remember the rabbit stew. <laughs> How weird is that? Yeah. 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 Not but the weird guy in the corner eating not, it. No, no. I mean, it was quite, quite a strange environment, all in all, if I'm honest. But uh, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, after shutting the restaurant, I actually decided to go to Eastern Europe for uh, about 10 months. Mm-hmm. I worked on a variety of sort of eco projects. So you may have heard of like woofing and things like that. So I, I joined various groups of people month to month, all the way from Slovenia going up to Estonia at the end, all along the sort of far east as you can go without going into Ukraine and Russia at points. And uh, yeah, th- at that point, I was just completely blown away by how much wild flavor was actually involved in the day to day. What I was positioning my pub restaurant as was kind of what people were just doing. And uh, that for me kind of really sparked my interest to get back into it. And uh, yeah, lockdown happened, had to come back. I got asked to do a couple of courses for an old associate. And uh, yeah, I decided to get back into it and Flavor Fred got started. And that's about a year ago now. Yeah, a year. Amazing. So almost when we met, you had just started. Yeah, correct. Nice. That's very cool. Correct. So yeah, we were spotting... I mean, you know, January isn't the best time for foraging, let's be brutally honest, but it definitely does have plenty of things you can look for and you can also kind of identify what you're going to expect. So if you're interested in identifying trees and seeing winter mushrooms and the beginnings of shoots of things, it's all there, especially if you get to an area that's a bit more built up where it's ever so slightly warmer as well. So it's probably different for you growing up and stuff. January does seem a bit barren. Yeah, so I'm from the middle of nowhere in the Midlands. So January to me is just that time where you you sit inside and yeah. play video games. How did you start running the foraging walks? And what do people get when they, they come out with you? Well, they get a lot. I mean, generally they, they run, it depends. So I do a few. So I do some that I call flavor-led walks where I'll focus in on ingredients A lot of the ingredients you will know, you'll have some sort of relationship with them somehow because they have families that they sit in that, you know, common ingredients that we use every day are in those. So it's quite nice and easy to talk about those. So, yeah, along the way, I'll make a bunch of pickles and fusions and ferments that I'll be showcasing how you can actually embrace that flavor and use it yourselves, but also talk a lot about the folklore and history behind flavor and where things have come from. So, yeah, I, I think sometimes I probably should have been born a, a few thousand years ago, kind of just wandering around, <laughs> scratching my head on sort of finding things and how I can use them rather than sort of wandering around sort of a busy, busy city at times, because I do run them in, in London on the Heath and other places. The other walks I do actually result in a big old cook-off at the end. So you nice. mentioned that earlier. Yeah. So I, I run a few on areas. So one private estate is, is in West Sussex. And they've got a lovely ancient woodland and they're very nice to me. They've got a a big old pit that I cook on. So we light a massive fire at the end of the session and yeah, cook it up. Some lovely food. I take a lot of inspiration at the moment from like Eastern Mediterranean cuisine and try and like infuse wild ingredients. 
and actually connect the dots between some of the spices that people kind of associate with faraway lands when actually there's quite a few you can get right here that are just being left, walked on, trodden on, forgotten about. Yeah, I guess that's the the really interesting thing that's happened with like modern culture is we're just so used to being able to buy whatever we want from yeah. wherever we want just down the road from us yeah. that people aren't necessarily looking what what's under their feet and knowing what they can do with that. What is the most surprising wild flavour? And are the, are the flavours strong or are they kind of weak? In my opinion, the, the ones that you hear about, right? So we're coming into spring, everyone's going to talk about wild garlic. Next thing will be elderflower. Mm -hmm. Then there'll be samphire if you're nearer the coast. You know, Then we're going to get all the fruits and then the fungi is going to come in. So wild garlic, elderflower, samphire, you know, porcini, sep, penny bun, whatever you, you know the name of that particular fungi as... You know, they're all, in my opinion, as perfect a product as the wild can provide. And that's why you see them on menus commonly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in, in my opinion, like those are, are pretty good, but there's much more out there that you can actually find quite easily. You know, just, just the other day, there's a root that I've used in many things. It's called clove root. We walk all over it. You know, scientific name, GM Urbanum, suggests it grows everywhere in an urban environment. And it's got the same oils in there as cloves do so you have to get a lot more of it than a single clove but you can definitely gather that very easily and because it's such an urban plant it's actually an item you can just go and weed you know if you want to weed your garden you're probably ripping this out and chucking it in the garden waste bin all the time so for me that's some of the best things to point out when you're in the city i also love to i go by flavor fred for a reason i'm definitely interested in foraging and wild flavor but I also like to take advantage of some of the ornamental fruits and leaves and things like that that people have just in their gardens. I do a fig leaf drink and I just dropped a bottle off to the lady who let me prune her fig leaf tree down the road from me. So like that's a really a nice one to do. Yeah, a bit of bartering. It's a public service. I think so at times. So yeah, it's nice. When we first started Square Root, we were using quite a lot of seasonal or foraged bits and pieces. And I have a fun memory of raiding a front garden yeah. in Haringey for rose petals off of someone's um, rose plant. I hope you asked them first. It was it was like 10 p.m. <laughs> at night. I can't Awkward. say that we were necessarily doing it in the most legitimate way. I also can't say that it was one singular garden. It was like a, a particular like, street. You were like head, head chopping round yeah. Haringey. This is this is <laughs> this is before we went legit. You know, I mean, do, do you do you think is is that something you've got to be careful with? In foraging, I mean, like, just for clarity, we don't go raiding front gardens anymore. Like, that was that is well behind us. That's like 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> is that something you've got to be conscious of? Yeah, very much so. I mean, for, you know, the most important thing to be aware of, I guess, when it comes to wild ingredients is you need to make sure, first of all, that you're not breaking the ground. Like, that's got so many other issues around doing it. Not only may you be on someone's land, digging up their land, but the, the relationships with plants, ecosystems, roots, fungi, mycelium, all that stuff, you, you need to be very conscious of. You also need to be very conscious of protected plants and fungi as well. So, you know, even at Hampstead Heath, there's a lion's mane, there's a picture of it on, that's been found and photographed on the heath. That's a protected fungi. You can't take that. For things like orchids, other stuff. Mm. So yeah, I, I guess the ultimate rule is if it's growing above the ground and it's not protected and you're not doing it for commercial gain like I am, then it's actually, you're able to forage it. But I always like to point out that 
there are relationships happening. It's not all about us mm. trying to find all these leaves. There's going to be plants, animals, and all those things that will be involved in some of the benefits of those growing. So I, I like to say most of the time, come and join a walk with me and I'll teach you how to identify, how to experience and how to use it. And then grab a, grab a book, do a country walk, have some fun identifying things, maybe stop off along the way for a bite to eat. And then, uh, yeah, keep on learning. I think it's always something that I'm quite conscious of when we go out is also like not taking everything. Yeah. So especially because I and you as well are a Blackberry fiend. Love them. <laughs> absolutely love them. But it's not nice when you turn up to a bush and there's absolutely nothing left. So No, you need to leave some for the blackbirds, right? Some for the birds, some for other people walking past that don't get up as early as you do. Yeah. I mean, as also as you're coming into like winter as well, the, the birds definitely need, yeah. Yeah. need that. So yeah, it is definitely, you know, I, I always get, that always comes across in a conversation, mm. especially if I'm advertising foraging. I'll always have someone who says, you know, don't steal all the animals' food kind of thing. When actually, I am quite clear around my position on this. It's a very important topic. And the more people understand and engage with nature, they actually understand it better. So, uh, yeah, it is, it is definitely something you kind of need to have a rule and an understanding of. And the worst thing, you know, you see is some companies will be going out, commercial foraging companies. I'm not bad-mouthing any in particular, but I, I do quite often get asked to gather 50 kilos of wild garlic because I'm a, apparently I'm a forager, right? If you take 50 kilos of wild garlic out of a woodland, like there's absolutely no way you're not doing any damage. Just walking in and out, dragging the bags in and out yeah. is bad news. So that, that's the sort of side that I think gets a bad rep. And then fingers get pointed as well. You know, obviously some cultures foraging, being out in the wild, that's part of their, that's part of their life. Yeah, you know, and then all of a sudden, someone's to blame when actually it's normally it's normally commercial that's, that's the, the issue with that. So, you know, do do what you can. I think take it's if you feel like you can, and you're not going like, to leave it in your fridge to go off. That's the that's the kind of thing that really bothers me. I always wonder whether that happens with fungi. You know, people go in super excited, want to pick something. Then by the time they get it home, the fear sets in. <laughs> Have I got the right thing? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, you're just sad because uh, this year we really just, didn't find any find anything. I don't know what it was. Yeah, you, I just, who, got, who do you think took it from you? I think it was all of them people. You're training to forage for mushrooms, going out, yeah, stealing did, them. You did say that to me. It was, I was, like, it was because dead. of people like you. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was, that was like, a what? wind up. No, I think I, I I have to say I think it's amazing that people are engaging more. Like it felt quite lonely. I've I've always been really passionate about. Mm fungi specifically but you know wild ingredients is something that i don't think i've got the level of confidence or level of knowledge that you have but i've always been a champion of it i love it and it's super exciting so i think it's amazing that more people are getting some joy and excitement out of it because i think it is great to connect back with these ingredients and, and actually respect and understand them you know if you're walking into a wood and you're like right okay these plants are part of our heritage you've got a reason to protect that wood mm -hmm. and you've also if you're going out to that wood and you're actually experiencing it you've got a reason to care about it so if legislation changes people are more emotionally connected so it's all about provenance and place and people i'd also so. add there's there's more aspects than just finding food as well everything comes from nature we are from nature so like medicines are i mean the med medicinal mushroom 
market is huge, right? That's a really interesting space that's blossoming where some of these big companies would obviously not invest in showing some of the the values of something that's absolutely everywhere, right? They're not going to make money out of it. But the folklore that surrounds things as well, you know, I, I get, I do, I literally do get lost sort of thinking about maybe that's why they reference that in terms of sounding like the devil as it burns and weird things like that. So. <laughs> You love your fungi, though. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, I know. I love, I love fungi. I think I've always been very passionate and very interested in fungi. And I think there's so much within the fungal kingdom that we don't know yet. And I think more time and money needs to be spent on researching what possibilities there are there. You know, that's... And they're finding new species all right. the time. I was... I went to a, a talk in Kew about 15 years ago where they were talking about using... This is getting, like, deep biology, but... <laughs> shotgun sequencing and they were they were going around a woodland and, and drilling a hole in a in a tree getting the sawdust and blitzing it so they use a computer to reassemble the dna to kind of to see to sequence and work out what's there and i think it was the first time that work had been done and people were blown away because you know when when you go out mm. you're using your eyes your nose to spot things and find things and you're only looking at that part of the fungi that's the that's the mushroom that's the fruiting body that's the you know just just the one showy piece mm-hmm. but you know you were looking in in this wood and then finding a community of different mycelia all growing together. And people were like, whoa, okay, we had no idea that that was going on on a cellular level. And I think, you know, that's just one example of, of one experiment in one woodland. And, you know, I, th- I think that was the first time that type of work had been done. And it was, it completely revolutionized the way people were thinking about wild, the wild environment, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's that interconnectedness. So, yeah, I think there's more to come. For sure. It's, it's great that it's kind of getting picked up now and people are getting really excited about fungi. But Yeah, I think you're right though. It starts it starts with edible and people are, are interested in what they can get to eat and then quickly moves into what else can I do with this? How else is this beneficial mm-hmm. to me? And I think even, even just being outside is really beneficial to people, encouraging people to get out there and, and look at things. So... I'd be interested to know about some of the products that you do make commercially. What flavors are strong flavors? Mm-hmm. And, and are there any that might surprise you? Yeah. So how do you take those flavors that are unique, perhaps, and showcase them in the drinks that you make? My processes sort of vary in terms of how I get the flavors out as much as the flavors that you would find. So there are things like the one that I brought in, which has been my most popular item for Christmas. So it's it's made out of noble fir cones. So some people may have heard of something called Mogolio, or people may have been to Noma and had a, a pine caramel, mm-hmm. or you may have you know grown up having a throat syrup. That's literally what Mogolio is known as, but it's got many different names from many different countries. The, the process of actually developing that as a flavor is as much to do with the time you give it to ferment as it is for that ingredient itself. So that the cones on that, the fir cones on the what is our Christmas tree, essentially, is just layered up with sugar. And the, the flavors develop as the yeast breaks down and eats the sugar and also breaks down the, the water content and all those flavors that are within the cone. So after three months or so, it just comes to this rich, deep, papaya smoky piney item that is absolutely wicked like I, I have that on my walks I generally serve it with something like a cream cheese or a pickled blackberry and just put it on top 
So if mm. you're thinking about like maple syrups or like even like fig sort of salads that might have cheese and something sweet or a fig syrup on top, it's kind of like going down that avenue. But rather than me drilling into a tree like you would for maple syrup, I'm trying to use something that the tree is overproducing for an environment yeah. within which it cannot actually continue to grow. So yeah, for me, that's a really cool one. Mm. Otherwise, I'm I'm putting things into, I'm doing lots of infusions. So bitter herbs, you know, we don't have a very, like much of a palate for bitter food anymore. Uh, going back to a salad is a good example, like an endive is a bitter leaf, right? So it's very nice to combine that with sweet and sharp. And so yeah, I use a lot of bitter herbs and I balance them with various sweeteners and things like that. I'm working on a, on a on a drink that's taken apple cider vinegar and a bunch of wild bitter herbs and then blending it with fruit as the fruit is at its at its best essentially. So yeah, these are these are a few cool ones. But you know, I can find you a spice that tastes like cardamom meets orange. Like I said, a root that tastes like cloves. You know, there's leaves out there that taste like pepper. Right now, there's types of mustard cardamine group there. They taste like wasabi if you pick the right part of the plant. So yeah, it's a it's a real eye opener. So yes, I mean it's the world is your oyster if you kind of want to explore it. But the one thing we don't have is um, yeah proper like chili capsicum. Mm. So mm. that's 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 a tough one for me because I love it. So I just use it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a purist, right? I don't. I, there are plenty of people who are in the foraging community that have done a purely wild food diet. Like I'm I I quite like to use salt flour oil and various ingredients but i do like to play around with wild ingredients and try and substitute and make dishes that you may know as associated with another country perhaps or another area in the world and actually bring in a wild ingredient that does just as good a job there are definitely uh, wild ingredients that don't do as good a job so like the easiest one i always talk about is a wild carrot you break it open and it smells like the most amazing carrot but you're not going to eat it. You might as well chew on a twig. You know, it's like, it's basically wood. <laughs> so yeah, there's a trade-off. So those perfect ones we spoke about earlier, Samphire, Porcini mm. and whatnot, you know, they are, in my opinion, up there and recognized because they are as good as something that may be cultivated and developed. Yeah. And actually they can't cultivate and develop half of them, Porcini in particular. But uh, yeah, they, they definitely, um, they need a helping hand when they're not the big hitters, basically. Nice. And as you're you're talking, I'm just thinking that you you have almost like an encyclopedic knowledge of what things go together and how something might work with something else. Are you else. sure about that? <laughs> how well? How how did you develop it? I I could not answer that very well. To be <laughs> honest, I've always been into cooking. Yeah, I come from a family very interested in food and also plants. So my my dad's always gardened. My sister works for a big plant company. My brother's was a marine biologist for quite a while. So we're all kind of involved in nature, but we all love to cook. So when I started my restaurant, pub restaurant, I didn't have any chefing experience. In fact, I actually started chefing because the chef threatened to cut my face off and <laughs> oh walked, walked out and said, we're shut in the kitchen. And that was the evening, worst evening of my life. But that was then the start of five years of working so I kind of know what I like to eat mm. and I knew a lot about wild food, not as much as I do now, but, and the combinations just came from there. So it is, I guess I've kind of tried to develop my own cuisine to an extent. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's like, blow your mind. This is like the most amazing thing. And he's doing all these weird 
like processes, but I am taking natural and well-known methods and kind of delivering flavor in a way that probably like not many chefs either have the time to do to go and pick and yeah. stuff like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a sweet spot, I think, fingers crossed, I hope. Nice. I think that moment you said about the, the chef, that's like a revolving doors moment. <laughs> um, you know, if, if that hadn't happened, maybe you wouldn't be on this path now? Does it, it, you know, were you thrown into it by that and forced to confront it yeah. to get to this? You have to go through some of these events, right? Terrifying, I would, I would say, was <laughs> that particular chef. Not all chefs are like that. I, <laughs> I know I've got plenty of friends who are chefs and they're wonderful, but this particular person just, yeah, I think we had someone important in and they made the menu too complicated that meant they were working 80 hours a week, even though I told them to make it simpler. These kind of things that you deal with when you're running a hospitality operation kind of come up quite a bit. And yeah, that was really, yeah, a very scary moment. You know, there was a pan that was smashed against the wall. And then, yeah, I think it was like the mayor or someone important. And <laughs> I was just like, can we, can we do something just before their meal? You know, like doing like a mousse-bouche or whatever. And uh, yeah, like it was, it was bad. And uh, that was the moment where they said, we got, I'm going to shut the kitchen, I'm not working. And I just wasn't really in the mood for that. And that was the start of it. But yeah, it, mean, it meant that I was kind of put into a pretty tough, it was a very challenging time. And then after a while, I actually found someone who was willing to cook the food that I was kind of designing. Hmm. And that was an absolute eye-opener. That was the best four years we had, I think. But yeah, that was yeah, challenging. But yeah, fun. Fun and mad all at the same time. <laughs> you know. Done quite a few, done, done quite a few things that haven't been amazing, I, I would certainly say. But yeah, nowadays I'm kind of putting together some pretty good combos, I think. So the products that you're making now, you're making them in a little workshop that you workshop. set up. The products that I make, I'm making them in my legally binding, which it is, <laughs> with the council and inspections. But it is a garage. It's my conver I've converted the garage into a space where I do a quite a lot of, I've got loads of big tubs infusing, loads of ferments going on. I've got a little distillery happening as well. So yeah, it is part of my house. I think that probably needs to change at some point as well. But uh, yeah, everything I, I kind of run when I am doing events, it is a lot of pre-preparation, but on the actual sites themselves, I'll try and do most of that there and use what I can. It does mean early starts, but it's, yeah, that's the best way to do it. Nice. We, I mean, we started from our kitchen as well, so yeah. we love a home setup. Yeah. You can it's call a garage a workshop as well. A workshop, <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah, I call it a lab sometimes. A lab. I was going to say, very, a lab, yeah. a lab nice. is good. I like that. My partner just told me to get everything in there, and that was kind of like <laughs> the There's ultimatum. Only, the smell of fermenting wild garlic is, is not an enjoyable aroma once you've kind of smelt it for about two weeks straight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. From funky onion smell. It's funky kind of, onions. Yeah, doesn't doesn't really do the relationship all that good. So, it's in it's in its best place. Yeah, and so from there, you're you're making these ferments. What's yep. your what kind of what's your your setup there like? What for making for making these? It's I mean, I guess like you may appreciate this. I have like food grade tubs. So that particular product 
is just layered up in a big food grade tub and then once it's kicked out of the water i just i have a i just keep a check on it it's obviously got you know it's not under pressure at any point so it's got a good valve on there and then yeah a big working table a system where i'm able to bottle quite easily but it's all it's all done by me it's yeah. not a there's there's no machinery haven't seen your machinery i was a bit jealous but <laughs> i uh, yeah it's a room of bottles and tubs and like i said glass jars full going on lots of experiments all yeah. the time and i've got um, luckily i've got a nice outside space as well so i get to sort of do some of the the cookery that i serve over fire in preparation for the events as well which makes life a bit easier i actually really I hope that at some point I'm going to open it up to have it more of a sort of a space where you can come in and actually eat and drink surrounded with all these different things going on and it'd be much more like a show and tell of it's kind of like it seems like who's this lunatic in his lab trying to like force feed me some fermented root of some allium but yeah I want to do some sort of dinner party kind of environment where people can really see what's going on yeah because it's quite nice to see the bottles and try everything it's like with foraging, right? Like people, you can take someone to a restaurant that serves forage food and it can be delicious. But if you could show them exactly where it is, what it looks like, how it grows, what you might associate it with, and then deliver the dish with it in yeah. or the drink, you are that's kind of where people's minds just get blown. They can see they can do it for themselves as well. It seems more obtainable. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a garage, and the floor is all those muscle pads, you know, at the gym. So, because everything's in glass, like it was, there's no more breaking of anything. It's just like one big padded room. Please let me come and visit. That sounds, <laughs> you can. That sounds great. On, can. on bottling day, you know, I'm handy. I'm, I'm more than happy. I will jug and, you know, funnel whatever you need. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you worry. That's it. I'm committing. <laughs> I might, I might bring it over to you. My, my life <laughs> more than happy. Nice. So we we've also made a product together. We have, which I that am was fun, wasn't it? Proud of it. Yeah, it tastes so good. I enjoyed the process as well. Yeah, the actual process of just ever so slightly. Oh, it was too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so the the product it's something that the Tate Modern actually approached us to make for them. It's a an apple and sweet Woodruff soda mm. so we we had the idea so i should probably start at the start right the exhibition that it's paired with is Cezanne. he's a french painter that was weirdly obsessed with apples like i was looking through all of the source material that the tate mm. sent me and it, it was literally maybe 99 paintings of apples of which they only have 27 on show so if you go to see it you won't see that many apples there's also a jug that reappears quite a few times but oh I mean, yeah he really liked this particular jug that i think was in his provencial kitchen <laughs> we couldn't get the jug for the production but we did get the apples we did also see his grandson at the opening yeah so, yeah, yeah that was was it his great grandson or his grandson i think it was he's like a 19 1912 is like yeah okay his most prolific year or something like that so great grandson Oh, man, I don't know how old people are. He, <laughs> he was, was very old, though. He was, yeah. He was super, super nice, though. He was very friendly. So, taking it back to the drink. Sorry. <laughs> he, we, we obviously, we had to do something with apples. And so many of his paintings are of the outside. 
So I thought it was a really great opportunity to bring some wild flavours into a drink and have it showcased in a place like the Tate where they have an amazing restaurant upstairs and a great menu, but they don't necessarily experiment so much with these unusual wild flavours. So, yeah. We did it. We did it. That was very cool. It was cool. Um, But what is sweet woodruff? Sweet woodruff, my (laughs) favourite herb. It's actually pretty well known. You, can, you quite a lot of people even grow it in their garden. It's a, it's a member of the gallium family, so that's where your cleavers, goose grass. I mean, that's got loads of great names. That particular sticky willy is a good name for that plant. <laughs> I was going to call it bullying. Bullying, yeah, <laughs> bullying is a good one. I wouldn't call them fond memories as a child. But. It's it's got so many different names. It's, uh, yeah, so that particular gallium, gallium apparine. So that's to do with the small hairs. It has the small hairs and that's the bullying sticking this sticky, <laughs> this sticky weed that is also known as uh, is thrown around at school or yeah, my brothers definitely did it to me. So yeah, so that family has a bunch of different galliums that are known as the bed straws. So mm-hmm. the bed straws have a compound in them that you'll find in tonka bean amongst others, a coumarin, and it is released by drying the, the actual plant. The sticky weed doesn't have much, if any, but the bed straws do. So it was commonly used to stuff like bed sheets, pillowcases, to sort of cover up the smell of the inability to wash things as often as you wanted to. And sweet woodruff for me is a fantastic one because my my dad's side is German Jewish. So you know, growing up and seeing them every now and then was uh, when we would I would go and forage for Steinpilz, which is the the German name for the the penny bun, porcini sept that I keep talking about. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so in Germany, it's known as Waldmeister, so woodsman or wood, woodruff, and it is associated with an ancient woodland. So for me, when I'm out foraging and I know I'm in an ancient woodland, sweet woodruff or Waldmeister only grows well in a, a decent ancient woodland. So it's an indicator in spring for me to come back in autumn, but also has this amazing, amazing aroma that is celebrated around Maytime, made into various things, syrups into drinks, may wine, into ice creams. And more, more often than not nowadays, it's actually made synthetically. You know, so most German youth will know it as this sort of Waldmeister green sweet that's kind of a bit sickly and gross and why are they making me eat that? But actually the tradition does go back to this lovely woodland herb that's got this wonderful aroma once dried. And uh, yeah, works so well with apples. I mean, yeah. it's the, the combo... It's, it's nothing new. It's something when I had my restaurant, it was just, we'd shake it with apple juice mm. as, a, as an item. And uh, yeah, basically that whole exhibition, just some of the pictures, just like it shouted at me. <laughs> we, I did, there was, some, there was a couple of other things and I was just like, we just can't, we can't mess with that combo. So yeah, the sweet woodruff. Gallium odoratum is the choice for that drink. Yeah. And I enjoyed trying about 20 different, <laughs> yeah, playing around with the, the percentages a little bit on the ingredients and then finally coming up with it. And the, the final product was actually, I think, even more than when we, we tested it, right? Yeah. Because, like, I guess as you pasteurize, yeah, that's where it cooks it a bit. You were saying this, like, difference in flavors and it will change, which is an exciting thing. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the process when I develop any recipe is just to I want to say like invent a starting point but it's 
I have like a starting recipe that where I think it's going to be kind of good and then rapidly we will change one little bit in the recipe and keep testing tasting making mm. a liter at a time testing it tasting it adjusting and repeating and then yeah when you when you make the final product obviously things change as you scale it from a liter to i think we made we made like 5000 liters of this product um so when you scale it up that much a lot of a lot can actually change so you have to then adjust on the day and then yeah you're right we pasteurize after the product is in the bottle so everything is sealed inside mm. and then it goes through this heat treatment that preserves it and it sort of helps everything kind of gets like heated up and I don't know how to describe it like evaporated into the bottle together and then as it cools down it all sort of like mixes back in and you get a different product from this from what you put in pre-pasteurization to what comes out at the end I think I think that's a really important part of the flavor development of the product that we're doing as well because obviously you've got that slightly raw product at the start you blend it so that by the time it gets to the pasteurization stage after that you've got the perfect taste so you are also kind of tasting things slightly sharper perhaps than it tends to round things out a little bit mm. more brings yeah. it all together and I think in that in that drink it worked really well the carbonation also really elevated the woodruff I think when we open the bottle just it throws those beautiful aromas was- up it was like the the apple strudel was just being baked. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean? It was it was yeah, it's incredible actually. It's um, like liquid apple pie. I don't think we've got any left, have we? At the soda works, we don't. So we don't have any at the soda works. There's definitely some at the Tate still because the exhibition is still on. Yeah, it's it definitely try it while you can. It's it's absolutely mind blowing to be honest. Yeah. I think that's one of the ingredients where I was surprised how concentrated it was. Mm. There was so much flavor potential locked up in such a small amount mm. of herb in reality, and I think. Yeah, that kind of blew me away. Actually, I was like, "What? We've just got this, yeah. and then you know, you you infuse it, you extract it, and and then you really see the potential there. It was it was amazing. So I think that one, that one was like a, that's a key, such such an interesting ingredient. When yeah. when I make my syrups, I I do one gram of sweet woodruff into just water for five days, room temp, and then depending on the sugar concentration. Generally, one gram of sweet woodruff to 1,000 milliliters of water actually makes mm. an incredible, the mm. incredible flavor. So, like, a little bit goes a long way. Mm. So, yeah, really nice ingredient. And I, was, uh, I enjoyed doing that. That was great fun. Yeah, I think... <laughs> Those really... apples, though, as well. Oh, yeah. Wow, we should no, definitely exactly. highlight Loddington's. Um, incredible. Yeah. Amazing people. James is just brilliant. Yeah. Check out on socials. The videos from when we actually went to Loddington as well, because it's great to, I think it's on the Tate's Instagram, yeah. isn't it? Like the Tate did a great interview with him. I mean, he's so passionate. And I think the the varieties that we chose really blended well as well, because it wasn't just one straight apple. It was it was at least a couple. And blended two together, yeah. Yeah, and that, that was just amazing. But that that's key too, I think, having having that ingredient or those, those apples really elevated. It wasn't just like apple juice, any random apple juice. Yeah. It was such a well-considered drink. Yeah, and so the thing with the uh, Loddington's farm is that they they're moving more and more towards a a regenerative model mm. where they're they're removing pesticides, they're removing fertilizers, and they're trying to restore the the farm that was a really big commercial apple farm that sold your like six gala apples in a bag to supermarkets into something where the final product is just so nutrient dense and so good for you 
Visit Loddington Farm if you're down that way. <laughs> just outside of Maidstone. Lovely, pe- lovely people. And so what what are your plans for this year? Do you plan for a full year? Because you know seasonally what's coming. So this year is going to be very different to last year. Last year, I was working with a bunch of places like where we met at mm. Birch. I've decided to focus as much on Flavor Fred as possible. I am currently running a bunch of courses in a few different sites around the southeast as well as Bristol. So I should add my brother started the restaurant, pub restaurant with me and uh, decided to go and learn how to be a marine biologist and then move to Bristol. So we're doing stuff again over that way. I'm going to be doing every second weekend, I'll be running walks. So just the sort of the three hour sessions. And the last weekend, I'll be running sessions where it'll be cooking at the end and various other foragers and folklore experts. And I'm going to try and make the topics a little bit more interesting to sort of have some more fun events and workshops going on. I want to do a couple of pop-ups. I'm having a chat with like Love Shack over near Cambridge nice. Heath. Going to do something with Susie, Queer as Fungi, doing fungi food as a medicine events, which is going to be wicked. Very cool. And then generally just going to try and not burn myself out. That's what I did last year. And just keep it fun and exciting in general and just, yeah, put as much information out as possible. I've, I keep making these dumb videos. <laughs> I, love uh, I made you a nettle huller. Yes. So you can, have, you can have this tiny little nettle huller that I just ripped open. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's the end of my... Uh, you can open it up because I've already done it for you. Ah. But it's bright green. So that's the last yeah, of is. my dried nettles from last year. And then I've just done a lovely little recipe there, which I'll be sharing. But yeah, keep doing stuff like that. And I'm probably going to be open to doing more collaborations. I mean, I don't know what else. What else can I do? I need to like add some staff maybe perhaps if I'm going to do any more. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm going to... I'm working on a lovely, like I said, a lovely non-alcoholic bitter botanicals and blends. I'm trying to source some apple cider vinegar from somewhere for that. I've done a few tests with a few various well-known apple cider vinegar providers, but mm. um, yeah, quite keen to to see if I can develop something. And then obviously if you guys want to do another drink or you get any other options, then I'm happy to get involved, provide the the wild flavours. Yeah. <laughs> The wild times <laughs> and uh, yeah i guess that's it like that's 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 where we're at that's the challenge i guess wild flavor the possibility is endless you can do anything <laughs> yeah i i really want to do something coastal to be honest with you like i'm desperate to do something coastal i've got a good friend of mine duncan who's a doctor of seaweed and like <laughs> it's an it's an area that i don't know enough about and he is a doctor of seaweed so yeah that's going to have to happen. He does live on the west coast of Scotland, so I guess I have to go <laughs> see him for that. Sounds tough. Fingers crossed it's not raining. <laughs> seaweed soda. Seaweed soda. I've never tried it. What? I'm into it. Let's, let's, get, let's make seaweed it happen. Soda? I'm 100% into seaweed soda. <laughs> seaweed soda. It's got to be done. It's, it's, I mean, it already like rolls off the tongue. That's it. Seaweed soda. You heard it first. The saline seaweed oh, soda. I don't know if that works, does it? Sea buckthorn as well. Pop sea a bit buckthorn, that in. yeah. Pop that in. That's a... Uh, that's a that's a nutritional powerhouse. Is it? I think it tastes a bit like passion fruit. It's pretty cool. Mm. I think it tastes like orange cordial mixed with uh, tropical juice <laughs> and a Barocca dropped in. There you go. So I'm not selling it, but people do make it work. It's, this a, could be it's a, one. a big in Eastern Europe. It's a huge, huge ingredient. 
you know, I've seen it with like rosemary and lemonade, just ju- the juice half and half on the lemonade. It's wicked. But yeah, is that nice? Bit earthy? Mm. Yeah, I'm loving it. I can't it's stop It's really now. interesting. You can really put cool. some pickled blackberries on there if you want, you know. Maybe not. You've already made a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love a bit of green food. It looks, it is great. I yeah. Some, yeah, super tasty. He cooks, he bakes, he pickles, he ferments. He brings us snacks. I mean, goodness me, we've got to have you back. I'm making drinks with you again. Nice. Great. So actually, we've this time we've been very good at promoting Square Root throughout this podcast. <laughs> but my final question is the same for everybody. And you can't say Apple and Woodruff, but if you could make any flavour of soda, what oh. flavour of soda would you make? Whoa. That's a good one. Maybe mm. I'll make it happen. Maybe. Maybe you will. Do you know what? I do this thing. I think it's like an Italian recipe. I did it with Damson's. And you you get them, you take the seed out, you put them, cut them in half. Very quickly, like vinegar, sugar, water, a couple of spices. You drop them in for like a minute and then you take them out. And then you reduce down all that leftover syrup and pour them back on top of the, the plums. And for some reason, this sort of like sweet, slightly pickled, I think it's like a quarter vinegar and then the rest water and a bit of sugar in that. And uh, so that's an incredible flavor. So I love that. And then I'm really like, yeah, I think like I've been looking at lots of Japanese mm. like processes with plums, obviously. It's a big one. So that's kind of the avenue I think I'd like to go down. And it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like this, I, I, every year I kind of do wonder why those plums never get, never get used. We have various qualities year to year but like some years it's like it's just like grapes mm. you know yeah. and i just i do wonder do wonder about those but you know that's what we should do <laughs> wild wild plum and maybe like some sort of spice yeah, yeah wild plum and like a local spice you can do that something. one something i was gonna say something spicy but something like peppery spicy pepper be really good it's got a bit of clove root in there yeah. clove root love it but yeah Thank you very much for having me on. That no, was great. thanks for joining us. I really enjoyed my lovely drink. Good. Obviously, <laughs> you know, I, w- I was hoping there'd be some more apple and sweet woodruff here. but We drank it all. I'm really sure. I know. I know. A couple more cases if they- you happen to find some. Let me know. We can make it happen. So then the last thing you have to do is just to tell everybody who's listening how they can find you after this. Yeah, I'm on the internet. The internet. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my friend, but I try... <laughs> It, flavorfred.com and my socials are all at flavorfred nice well thanks for joining us i'm glad i got here as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i was like i forgot my phone is broken it got too hot because so i was trying to film something close up in a pan <laughs> some rhubarb yeah and uh, yeah it, tur- it said the temperature was too high and then didn't turn back on so you so cooked your phone i've cooked before my phone this. just literally before this that's that's an excuse we've not had a guest use before. It's good because no. uh, you know I'll I'll use it again. <laughs> it's got mileage. Yeah. Nice. Fade to exit music. I think that's it. Yeah. Psh. We clack again. <laughs>